again. <laughs> I'm starting a message series today that we've called Paradox and wanted to start it out by defining paradox for you. It's a word we use occasionally. Uh, and it means uh, a statement or proposition that seems self-contradictory or absurd, but in reality expresses a possible truth. Webster's, that's dictionary.com, Webster says it's a tenet contrary to received opinion. That's paradox. So we're, we're going to look in this series at some things that are paradoxical, that seem like contradictions because of the overwhelming uh, view of the people in our world and the world at large. Uh, a paradox seems like a contradiction, but it can be resolved. It's, it's, a, it's something that can, can be thought through, and you can figure it out. I've been reading a book called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God by J.I. Packer, and he said that a paradox is a figure of speech, a play on words that points out an apparent contradiction. It's not really a contradiction. He says a paradox can always be resolved when you match it up with reality. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at the apparent contradiction, and then we're going to match it up with reality and see how it resolves itself in that. When, when you follow Christ, if you haven't yet committed your life to follow Christ, if you're trying to figure that out, investigating what that means, this, this will help you understand some things about what it's like to follow Christ. When you set yourself to follow him, it seems like you're living a paradox. It, it, it just you're, you're constantly finding yourself in a situation where you have to choose, if you're going to follow him, you have to choose against received opinions, you know, the opinions of the, of the majority. Um, over and over again, the people and the things that are most important in any given situation seem insignificant. And the insignificant seem like the most important. When God scans a situation, we get surprised by what he focuses on. We get surprised at what he does. Christmas is a perfect example of how God is, how he, his way, the way he works. Um, when God himself decided to step into this world in the person of Jesus Christ, he arranged to be born in an obscure village, Bethlehem, very obscure village, in a manger, like a horse trough, an animal feeding trough. His family that he was born into wasn't very significant. In fact, they didn't even deserve preferential treatment at the end. Nobody knew who they were. They showed up at the end. No room. No place for you. Now, if they were a very significant person in the eyes of the world, the innkeeper would have realized this and made a place for them. But no, no, no place. Not that significant. Jesus grew up in Nazareth, which was similar to Las Vegas today in the reputation of Nazareth. Very, very similar to Las Vegas. He died a criminal's death. And yet, this is God who became man, 
who took on our flesh, and now everyone who bows to him are blessed by him. This is is God's way. This is the way he works. It's important to know this. He constantly works through the people and the things that we consider trivial and significant. If we don't understand that this is God's way, we miss what he's doing because we overlook what is really important to him. We, we don't pay attention to it. We miss it. We miss the things that are really significant in the eyes of God. So we need to remember that God keeps making the insignificant significant. That's what God does. He has a purpose in this, and we're going to find that, that out, what his purpose is. In the passage we're going to dig into here in 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 31, uh, we're going to find out what God's up to, how he does things typically, and then why he does it that way. Uh, Paul was writing this uh, to the Corinthians to make some points, to draw out some principles that we can learn from and live by. And he says to them, brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Think of what you were when you became Christians, when you decided to follow Christ. Not many of you, some of you were, but not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of the world um, and the despised things. The lowly things of the world is another reference to the kind of birth. Literally, it means things that are not of a noble or illustrious birth. Jesus himself was not of noble birth. He was born into extremely humble circumstances. That's what I was just talking about. So these are the things God chooses, the lowly things of the world, the despised things, and the things that are not, the disposable things. Nobody frames a Kleenex. You use it and throw it away. You don't give much thought to a Kleenex. That's... That's the idea of this word, the despised things, the things that are not. These are the very things that God uses to to do what he does. He does this to nullify the things that are. Now, here's God's purpose in this. Here's why God does this this way, so that no one may boast before him. Let's let's stop right there for a second. He does this so that no one may boast boast in his presence. Now, we, as people, we are creatures. Now, I don't mean that we're equivalent to the things you find in a creature feature, like a monster, or sometimes we turn into monsters, but uh, I don't mean that we're creatures in that sense. We, We are creatures in the sense that we've been made. Now, we're people who've been made in the image of God, and that gives us a tremendous amount of dignity. And the role that he's given us on this earth is, is an important role. It's a, it's a role of significance. But still, we are creatures. We have been made by a creator. Everything we have, breath, life, all the good that we enjoy, it's from his hand. It's from God. Life and breath and everything that we enjoy is from God. But the way we are, we like to take credit for the good stuff in our lives. We, we, like to, we like to glory in 
the things that we have and the things that we've done and, and who we are. But God keeps doing the significant through the insignificant so that no one will boast before him. So that no one will glory outside of him. Because it's only right that he gets all of the credit and all of the glory for the good that he experienced. Since we're made, since we're creatures, since we've been made by him, it's only right. That's why he does this. This is God's way. We, we shouldn't be surprised by it as we learn this. And this is why. It's because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. If you're going to boast in anything, if you're going to brag on something, brag about what God has done. On your behalf, what he's done in you, what he's done through you, what he's done for you. What God, God should get the credit. He should get the glory. He's the one that deserves the honor. God has a well-established track record of using the least in the eyes of the world to accomplish the most. This is how he does it. Here are some examples. Here are some examples of the least. The nation of Israel. nation of Israel were, were the people that God um, raised up in, you know, you can read about it in the Old Testament. He raised the nation of Israel up, and through the nation of Israel, he was hoping to get to the rest of the world. They, they, he wanted to make them an example that would draw people to himself. And he chose them. He explains why he chose them in Deuteronomy 7, 7 through 9. He didn't choose them because they were the greatest. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than the other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your forefathers that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh and king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant to, of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commands. The nation of Israel, he, he did the most through the least because that's the way God works. He, he is doing this this way so that he gets the glory. Jacob, another example, one of the patriarchs of the people of Israel. You can read his story, uh, some, most of it, in Genesis 25 through 36. He was a scheming, anemic, younger brother of Esau. He cheated Esau out of his birthright. If you're scanning that situation and you're going to choose one of these guys to, 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 to build on, you know, to build a, a, a nation on, you wouldn't choose Jacob. He was kind of a wimp. You know, he, 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 he just kind of hung around the house. Esau, he'd go out and hunt and bring it back. And his dad loved Esau. He appreciated it. God chose Jacob. He was God's choice to be the father of the nation of Israel. His name was actually changed to Israel, and he gave birth, his, his wife gave birth to the, the men whose descendants would become the 12 tribes of Israel. Another example, Gideon. In Judges 6 or 8, you can read, God raised up Gideon to be a judge in Israel and used Gideon to uh, lead the people to, to victory, to fight off the attack of the Midianites. 
When God told him that he would lead Israel to victory over the Midianites, Gideon's response was, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. Almost always you see this response in the people God chooses to lead. Why, why me? What are you thinking? You know, have you missed something? You're looking, at, you're looking at the nation and you choose me? I'm from a small tribe. I'm, from, I'm the least in my family. This is what God does. David was the same. David became the greatest king in the history of Israel. He was the youngest member of the smallest family and the smallest clan in the smallest tribe of Israel. Yet he's considered the greatest king. In fact, the throne that Jesus sits on is known as the throne of David. We've, we've been looking at that passage for the last few weeks. It's the throne of David. He's the, the smallest, the youngest, and, and seemingly the weakest, but that didn't turn out to be the case. God scanned the situation and he chose him. King Saul was the guy that the people of Israel chose, the big strapping you know, good-looking guy that seemed to have it all together. That's who they chose, and that didn't go very well. Um, Mary, the mother of Jesus, she's from Nazareth, a place looked down upon. Bethlehem, where her roots were, uh, was sort of like the Hartshorn and Haleyville of, of her day now. Let me explain that. My, my mom is from Hartshorn, Oklahoma. Hartshorn and Haleyville, they're the twin cities. Uh, and I think... Haleyville has about 500, Hartshorn about 1,000. Okay, that, that's not a very significant place on the face of the map. That's kind of how Bethlehem was, out, out of the way, obscure, not that important. There was a pretty cool announcement from the shepherds. Pretty cool. But still, they're, they're blue-collar workers. They're just ordinary guys making a living. And God chose to announce what he's doing to them. Just normal, ordinary, hardworking guys. This is God's way. This is how he works. And here are some lessons we can draw from, from what we've read there in that passage and from these examples. First of all, don't be surprised when the people the world considers the most important don't follow Christ. Don't let that shock you. There is a strong current in the other direction. The op- There's a big pull in in the opposite direction of following Christ. Don't, don't be shocked by that. There's, a, there's that current that goes the other direction, and that's what creates this sense of paradox that, that we feel as we set out to follow Christ. Secondly, don't limit those who you're willing to learn from. God uses the insignificant to teach us many, many times, and we need to pay attention to what he might be doing through them. Third, God's purpose in doing the things this way is to show his power. That's what God's trying to do. He's, he's showing us his power. And as we watch what he does, we realize that he can do what he wants to do without the help of any human being. He doesn't need human strength, human wisdom, human wealth. He doesn't need any of that. And that's why he does it this way, because he's trying to show us his power that can be trusted. He chose the Israelites because they, he had promised, he had made a promise. It's his faithfulness that is working its way out in history. 
As we watch what he does, his faithfulness always shows up. And finally, don't overlook the fact that God cares about the seemingly insignificant people and situations around us every day. He, He cares. He's paying attention. He, he, is, he is not only watching the big stuff, but he's paying attention to the little things as well. In fact, maybe more attention to the little things. How many times do we trample on others as we're making plans for a big day? I know that I think there's a cable show. I've never taken the time to watch it, but Bride Wars or Bridezilla or something like that. You know, they got the big day. They're they're excited about the big day and they're they're just running amok over all the people around them as they get ready for the big day because it's got to be perfect. How many times do we do that? There's a big day coming up, and we're making the plans, and we're getting ready for it. And, and wow, we, we run over people. The big event isn't as important as the people involved. That's what's significant to God, the people around us that are, that are going to be joining together in the big event. We tend to say, when I'm handed a really significant role in the company, or when I finally get the position I deserve in church life, then I'm going to give everything I've got to it. It's not God's way. It's not the way he works. He he gives us a little. And then he watches to see what we do with the little. And if we handle that well, he gives us more. God honors what you do with the little. Out of the way, when no one else can see you, when things are obscure, he honors what you do with a little money, a little responsibility, and with those whom the world will consider little people. He honors it when we're faithful to him. God is constantly doing the most significant things through insignificant people and situations. So, as you get a hint at the end of that passage I was reading, the most significant thing is to gain a better understanding of God and what he wants. I'd like to look at the full passage that was hinted at in 1 Corinthians. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast of his might, let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth, for I delight in these things, declares the Lord. Here are three shaky foundations for boasting. My wisdom, my strength, and my riches. Over the last few years, we've seen how wealth and riches are shaky ground. The major factor in life is knowing God and doing His purpose. This is what life is all about. Knowing Him and doing His purpose every day as you face opportunity and situation after one after the other. Major factor in life is knowing what's significant before God in each situation and focusing our attention and effort on what he thinks is important. 
However, there's something in our hearts that would prefer to go it on our own without God's help. So we pump ourselves up. You know, we, we try to count up our wisdom and add up our riches and look at our strength and feel good about ourselves. And, and then when we blow it, we get disappointed. We get disappointed in ourselves. When we do something foolish, when we disobey the Lord, when we make a stupid mistake, or there's a weakness that shows up, or we're struggling in our finances, we've mishandled things, we tend to wallow in self-pity or beat ourselves to smithereens. We just start beating ourselves up. So here's some real encouragement for the new year. As we're headed, I don't know what last year was like. I don't know what the last week has been like. I don't know what you've been going through. But if you're, if you're feeling down and you need some encouragement, Here's some real encouragement for the new year if you're frustrated with yourself. God has a track record of not only using the least, he has a track record of using the imperfect and the flawed to do important things. You can see this in Jesus' genealogy in Matthew 1. There's a list of, uh, you know, this person begat that person and this, that, and the, the genealogy in Matthew 1. Um, and you see, some of the people that show up are very flawed. Tamar was one of them. Judah, one of the patriarchs of Israel, one of the first uh, people of Israel, chose her as a wife for his firstborn son. Firstborn son died. She, she was supposed to... Uh, then marry the second son, Onan, and Onan did some wicked things, and so uh, God, he died, and tomorrow's left, you know, this is two guys she's been through, so she comes up with a plan to seduce her father-in-law, and through that union, she gives birth to twins. Perez is one of the twins. He's, he's in the line of Jesus. This, this is in the genealogy of Jesus. Rahab shows up in the genealogy of Jesus, a prostitute whose most memorable act was a lie, for a good reason. But her most memorable act was a lie. She was the great-great-grandmother of David, on whose throne Jesus sits. Ruth, a Gentile. Those despised things, the Jewish folk, they would consider a Gentile a despised thing. Ruth is in Jesus' genealogy, a Gentile who chose faithfulness and experienced the blessing of God. Bathsheba got mixed up in an affair with King David and eventually gave birth to, to King Solomon who took over the throne and built God's king, temple. She shows up in the genealogy. As, as you look at that list, it's full of very flawed people. God has a pattern of using imperfect people to do the things he wants done. Actually, he has no other option. But there's some very flawed people in, in, this, in this genealogy. As we turn the corner to the new year, the most important thing you can do is, we, get, we learn from Jeremiah, set your heart to know God better. Set your heart on him. Dig into his word, the Bible, because... As you get into the scriptures, what you find is you find out what's really important to God. 
You find out how he scans the situation and the opportunity, how he's looking down in the family and a different situation at work, how he's looking at church life. You, you see what he looks at and what he picks out is significant. You learn his values. You learn his principles. And, and you can soak them in, and that's crucial. Because then you yourself learn to give, give your focus and time and effort and energy to the things that really matter to God. And life goes better. We need to keep swimming against the current and deal with the paradox that we have to deal with. And the scripture is crucial to that. That's how you get to know God better. Through the word, through prayer, listening to him speak to you in those ways. And second, assess each opportunity and situation and set your heart to show kindness, to do justice, and to live righteously with the help that God's going to provide as, as you rely on him. Not as you rely on your own wisdom, your own strength, and your own wealth, but as you rely on God to provide what you need to do what he wants you to do. Look at the situations and ask, what does he want done here? In family life, how can I show kindness to my kids, my, my husband, my wife, my parents that are around? How can I show kindness to them? In, in the little and the big things at work or in ministry, how can I do right before God with the responsibility that he's given me? No matter how small the assignment, how can I do right before God here? What's, what's right? What's important to him? My faithfulness is one of them. I need to be faithful with it. If it's within my power, how can I do justice in my family? How can I make things right? How can I avoid partiality, favoritism? How can I, how can I be just and make this situation as just as possible? My family at work in the ministry. As we head into to 2011, here's a major question for the new year. Am I willing to respond to God by doing what he wants me to do right now? If, if you'll handle day after day, situation after situation, opportunity after opportunity, asking that question, and then when you don't, reviewing the situation, getting, getting things straightened out with God, God's very gracious. He uses imperfect people. That's what he does. He uses the least and the flawed. Ask that question over and over again. God, what do you want done? I will respond. I submit to you. I will respond to you. Do with me what you want right now. I want to do kindness. I want to do justice and righteousness before you. Major question for the new year. If you want it to go well, keep asking that question. If you want to have a happy new year, that's the way to do it. Keep asking that question as you face situation after situation. Uh, we're going to be receiving our offering in a few minutes. And I'd like to give you the opportunity to consider how you'll respond to the message this morning. As you, as you listen to the word, God wants us to apply it, to, to respond to it, to do something about it. And as you take steps to follow him, uh, our understanding of God, our understanding of his principles, his ways opens up more and more to us as you keep following and taking steps uh, in, the, in the direction he leads. So here are some suggested next steps that you can take. You may have some others that have come to mind. But one would be to memorize Jeremiah 9, 23, and 24. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, or the mighty man boast in his might, or the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. 
That's important. We, you could memorize that. That'd be a great thing to remind you and I of what, what's important. Second, read the story of one of the least. I listed the passages that go with them. Read the story of one of the least above and write out lessons that you learn about following God from them. Some great, great lessons to learn from them. And then finally, respond to God by doing what I know He wants right now. There may be something as I've talked or something He's been laying on your heart recently that you've been thinking over and He's he's bringing to your attention. He wants you to take a step. Take that step. That could be something you do as a result of being here this morning. Would you pray with me before we keep going? I'd like to ask the band to come up if I could. Father, we, we bow to honor you. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for stepping into this world. We thank you for the salvation that results from that. Thank you for the death that you died, for the power that you show in your resur- resurrection. And God, I, I honor you and praise you for the way that you do things. We can see the pattern. We can see how you work. And thankfully, everybody on the face of the earth has the opportunity to, to do um, what, what you want us to do, to honor our Creator. And uh, you, you, don't, you, you, aren't, you don't show favoritism. And so I thank you, God, that you use the least and the flock do what you want us to do, and you make significant things come out of those who seem insignificant. Help us to help us to grasp what's important to you. Help us to know what you value and live for those things as we head into this year coming up. We ask for your help in this in the name of Jesus Christ.